are preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and our series is titled Marked. A little play on words. We, we want our lives to be marked by our encounter with Jesus Christ through the study of His life and teachings. And you can do more than just come on Sunday to hear the sermon, although, thumbs up. And if you miss any of the sermons, you can catch up online, clearwater.church, download the Clearwater Church app. But as I said, there, uh, there are these half sheets of paper which tell you what the texts are we're preaching on and suggest some other portions of Mark to read in advance. And also, we have two online Bible studies that we recommend. Sabrina is doing the one by the Gospel Coalition, and she says that it is uh, tremendously enhancing her uh, experience during this series. Translation, listening to James and me is not enough. <laughs> and you know what? It's not. It's not. Bible engagement. All of the studies show that, the, that Bible engagement is the number one contributor to spiritual growth. So the more that we can get you into the Word of God, reading the Word of God, thinking about the Word of God, studying the Word of God, the better off you will be. And of course, doing that in community uh, is uh, even better. And so that's why we have journey groups, and our journey group catalogs are out. We have uh, multiple groups meeting at multiple times and places. And so find a group that uh, works for you. Again, you can uh, talk to Pastor James today, and he'll help you find a group. And some of the groups are working through uh, discussing the sermon from the previous Sunday. In the bulletins, you have fill-in-the-blanks and study questions also to keep you engaged. Well, today we are going to be looking at uh, the sending of the first Christian, Christian missionaries. Jesus sends the twelve out two by two uh, into the towns and villages of Israel. And they heal the sick, and they cast out demons, and they preach the gospel. Part of the gospel. They don't have the full gospel at this time, as we will see. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read the text, then I'm going to walk through the text and make um, notations, and then I'm going to focus in on one particular aspect of this text and tease it out for the rest of the sermon. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. And he called the twelve, Jesus... The twelve are the, the twelve disciples who then become the twelve apostles of the church, his inner circle. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the first thing I want to point out here is that Jesus, from the very beginning, involved people in his great mission to save the world. Now, he's the Savior. He, 
He did everything that was necessary for us to be saved, but we are the ones who get out the good news. Now, Jesus is the one who hung upon the cross. Uh, it is by his stripes we're healed. He substituted himself on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sins. He's the one who was dead and buried. He's the one who three days later rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death. He's the one who sent us his spirit to empower us to live a righteous life. And he's the one who will return someday to reign across the earth. He is the Savior. But as Paul says in Romans, how are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless somebody preaches? And preaching, please hear this, preaching is way more than just being up front on Sunday morning and doing what I'm doing. I count it a great privilege to do this. But you are preaching when in front of the locker you are telling your classmate about what God is doing in your life. You are preaching when you invite your neighbor over for some coffee and you share with them the good news about Jesus. You are preaching when you uh, get some of your colleagues together uh, during a little break and you have a Bible study. And, and listen, uh, this pattern of call and send. This is a pattern that God employs in all of our lives. He calls us to follow him, and then he sends us out into the world to preach the gospel. And we do that in so many different ways, uh, depending on who we are and uh, the relationships that we have. But we all need to be uh, on mission with Jesus. Two by two, uh, accountability, encouragement, safety, and in Israel at this time, uh, nothing, everything had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So it, it upped the credibility of the gospel. Gave them authority over the unclean spirits, the demons. Jesus had authority. We'd already seen that. And the people were amazed that Jesus could command the demons to be silent and come out. And the demons obeyed. It put him in a completely different category. But here Jesus is delegating that authority to other people. And so it underscores the fact that Jesus is not just a prophet to whom God has delegated that authority. He is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the son of the living God. He can delegate his authority. Of course, you can't forget that right before Jesus went up to heaven, what did he say? All authority on heaven, in heaven and earth is mine. And go and I'll be with you till the very end of the age. He charged them, verse 8, to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. All right, guys, I'm sending you out and uh, you are allowed to take a staff and wear some sandals and one pair of clothes. No extra pair. Why? He's teaching them dependence. You're on mission with God. He's going to take care of you. Depend on him. He will provide through the hospitality of other people. Now, the church in the following centuries did not take these instructions to be um, uh, requirements for all missions. But there is a timeless principle here. And the timeless principle is trust God to provide. When you're on mission with God, he's going to provide. Which means you can step out in faith. You can take risks. Hey, you know, when Sabrina and I started Clearwater Church, I had one month of severance and then nothing. <laughs> and she was full of faith. God will provide. I was a little bit, <laughs> a little more 
cautious and stressed out. Uh, but we did. We stepped out and we said, all right, we're doing, we're on mission with God and we're going to trust him to provide. And he did. Verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. What's he saying? No trading up. You, you go into a village, nobody knows you, and somebody offers you hospitality. Come stay with me. And it might be, you know, the poorest person in the village. And so your accommodations are pretty rough. And now you begin to minister and you become popular and the, and the town likes you. And now the mayor of the town says, come stay at my house. It's bigger. My food is better. I've got a hot tub. And the, you know, the important people will come and listen to you. And you're like, yeah, I'm going there. And Jesus says, nope. Whoever first offers you hospitality, you stay there until you leave. You don't trade up. Why? Because when you're on Christian mission, it's all about serving other people. It's not about yourself. And you better not be leveraging your ministry for your own pocketbook, your own gain, your, your own betterment. That's not the purpose of Christian ministry. Verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Here Jesus is telling his disciples how to handle rejection and persecution. And make no mistake, if you are on mission, uh, you will encounter rejection. It will happen. So how do you handle it? Well, first thing to note is that uh, you are to leave. If people say, nope, we are not going to be, we don't want you here and we don't want to hear from you. Well, you have to honor their will. At some, at some point you have to say, all right, they've made a choice. And so Jesus tells them, when you leave, he doesn't say go camp out in the middle and be belligerent and yell it as loud as you can, even though they tell you they don't want to hear it. No, you have to respect their, uh, their right to say no to Jesus. It's a tragic thing when somebody says no, but they have a free will and we respect that. Secondly, uh, Jesus tells them to warn, you know, warn people what it is that they're really doing. And that's, the, that's what this whole shaking the dust off your sandals means. Uh, and Jews in the, at this time would have understood the symbolism of that act because it was, it was regular practice for Jews when they'd been traveling outside of the promised land and they'd been out with the Gentiles, right? When they would return to the promised land, uh, as soon as they crossed back over into Israel, they would shake the dust off, the, off their feet. It was a way of saying, I've been hanging out with the pagans, and I'm coming back to the, the place of God with the people of God. And there's, a, there's a, a big difference between them and us. And so for a, a disciple to you know, kick the dust off his sandals, uh, sandals with that symbolic act to a village or town of Israel, what's he saying? You guys, by rejecting us, by saying no to Jesus and the good news, uh, you are showing yourselves to be just like the pagans, to be no longer a part of the people of God, because you're saying no to the Messiah. And that would have been a total warning. And so, yes, we respect people's will, but we can also say, understand that uh, there is no other way. By rejecting the gospel, you are rejecting the way, the truth, the life 
For no one comes to the Father except through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand what you're doing? And then finally, we leave the, uh, the, res- we leave the, the results to the Lord. We leave those people to the Lord. Uh, it's a testimony against them, and God's the one who will ultimately judge. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this is a ministry of word and deed. And the deed is they're casting out demons. And by the way, when the, when the uh, disciples circled back and gave a report uh, of their mission, they were quite uh, excited about, right? The demons had to listen to us. It's unbelievable. They were pretty amazed at that. Uh, but they're also healing people. They're anointing them with oil, and God is healing many. And I read multiple explanations of what the oil is and does. It's most likely uh, olive oil, uh, and no one really knows what exactly is going on. Lots of theories. The only other time it's talked about is in James when uh, we're told, if you're sick, go to the elders of your church and ask for prayer. They'll anoint you with oil and pray over you, and you'll be healed. By the way, that is available to you. The elders here meet every other Wednesday morning, 6.30 to 8, and they would love to pray with you. We do that. Uh, But you have to step forward and ask for prayer. And you just ask one of the elders to schedule you, ask uh, James or myself, and we'll schedule you. And it doesn't just have to be a physical, a need for physical healing. It can be a, a need for emotional healing, right? I am I can't get rid of my bitterness. I can't get rid of my shame. I am addicted. Come. You know, don't sit on the sidelines when you have this a clear offer from the Lord. And come. And he sees your faith and he'll honor that. Now I want to focus the rest of the message on the, uh, the proclamation, the, the ministry of the word. Mark summarizes it like this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That's his summary. I'm sure they said more than, people should repent. Repent, all of you. I suspect there was more nuance to it, but you know, bottom line, that's what they're saying. Now, Jesus, we've already seen uh, in chapter one that Jesus, his ministry, uh, his proclamation was summarized this way. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel call includes a call to repentance and a call to faith. And here we see that the disciples are only calling people to repent. Why? Because at this point in their ministry, they don't really understand the rest of the gospel. They're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. Jesus has not yet died. He hasn't yet risen from the dead. Uh, They don't understand substitutionary atonement or anything else. But they do have the the call to repentance side of the equation. And so they go out and call people to repent. And um, repentance and faith are two sides of the conversion coin, so to speak. And uh, both are, are a part of the gospel call. And so... To be specific, um, you cannot be a Christian if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Both of those are necessary. Let me point out a few scriptures that point to these two sides of the 
uh, of the gospel call. Luke chapter 24, verse 46 and 47, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's, it's to his disciples. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So he's envisioning uh, the church going out into all the world, preaching the gospel, and the gospel includes repentance and uh, forgiveness in Christ's name. So faith in Christ. Acts 20, 20 and 21. Paul is talking to the elders of Ephesus, and he's saying, You know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of, here it is, number one, repentance toward God, number two, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not saying abandon it. He's saying build on it. It's the foundation. Don't just stay there. Add to it. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So the gospel call is a call to repentance and to faith. Faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So what is repentance? Repentance is a reorienting of your life. So your life before you become a Christian is oriented toward sin. And sin is shorthand for I'm the leader of my life. I call the shots. It's all about me. I put myself first. I put my, uh, I'm going to please myself and do anything and anything that feels good. Uh, I'm going to step on other people if I have to. Even, even a life that I'm going to be a good person and, and win my uh, way, to, way to heaven. Even that still, the Bible calls that, well, repentance of good works. We just read that. Even that is sin because it's not trusting God. And so that's where our, li our lives are oriented towards sin until we repent and we reorient away from sin toward God. And Christian repentance is toward God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden we say, God, I want you to be the leader of my life. I want you to be the center of my life. Uh, I need you. And so I'm going to, co I'm coming to you. I'm orienting my life towards you through faith in your son. He, Jesus is now leader and Lord of my life. Help me. Help me to grow in Christ's likeness, Lord. And you know if you've repented. As you're listening to me, you should know without any doubt whether or not that has happened to you. And if there's a question, then resolve that today because you can repent. Right now you can repent. There are no magical words. The Lord sees your heart. But if you say, God, I'm a sinner and I turn from my sin and I turn toward you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and I receive his death on the cross is payment for my sins, and, and I, I want to be your child and dwell with your spirit. You know, whatever words you want to use, if, that, if that's the sincerity of your heart, the Lord will honor that. He'll honor that. 
Now, repentance is, it pricks human pride. I can't help but think of my uh, good friend in college. Uh, he grew up as a Buddhist, and I, I said, come with me to hear Ravi Zacharias, a famous Christian apologist. Because at that point, it was, I don't, I don't really believe there's a personal God. After hearing Ravi, he said, all right, Mike, I think I'm willing to admit there is a personal God. But do I have to believe I'm a sinner? I said, yep. I, I can't, I'm not a sinner. I cannot believe that. And, and so up until we graduated, uh, he had not repented of his sins. He hadn't become a Christian because he couldn't acknowledge the fact that there was something fundamentally flawed with him. Because the call to repentance pricks our pride because it says you're not okay. You have a need to change. If you continue going the way you're going, you're going to go to hell. You're going to spend life separated from God. You need a reorientation of your life. And, and that, uh, that pricks our pride. And so many people say, no, thank you. I don't need to repent. And we know that that was the case with many of the Jews. They didn't all uh, respond favorably to this call to repent. I want to talk about initial repentance and ongoing repentance because they're, vo they're both important to a healthy spiritual life. So I've talked already about the initial repentance, that point in your life when you repent of your sins, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that happens, that's a one-time thing. I like to say relationships all have a starting place, right? Every relationship has a, has a start. And that's when your relationship with God starts. When you repent and put your faith in Jesus and he, and he sees that that's sincere and he honors that. To as many as receive him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. Your sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west, remembered no more. He puts his spirit within you, seals you for the day of redemption. He uh, adopts you into his family. You're his. You're part of his family. And that's, that all happens, that's the initial repentance. But then, you, we need to practice ongoing repentance. Why? Because we live in a fallen world, and even though when we, when we uh, repent initially, we are saying, I want to be holy as you are holy. I, I want to be right with you. I want to do what's right. And that's our, that's our desire. That's our heart attitude. We live in a fallen world where there are all kinds of temptations triggers to sin. And we still have a sin nature that, that draws us to sin. And so uh, we grow in holiness. And sanctification is a process where we become, become experientially more and more like Jesus throughout a lifetime, but it never ends. So we sin. And when we sin, what do we do? Well, let me give you an, uh, uh, an illustration. So imagine I get angry with Sabrina. And in my anger, uh, I go blowfish, right? Get all big and angry. And I, I yell at her and I use a curse word. <laughs> you should be startled. That's a sin. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against my wife. Now, if I just move forward without repenting, I don't lose my salvation, I'm still going to heaven. I'm still a child of God, but it affects my soul. 
One thing it does is it will desensitize me to that sin. And uh, Timothy talks about the searing of the conscience. It's like the hot iron hits the flesh. Well, that becomes less sensitive. And so if I move forward, do you think it'll be easier or harder for me to get angry and use curse words against my wife the next time? It becomes easier and easier, and maybe it can become habitual, right? Now, uh, secondly, how does it affect my self-image? I begin to be, uh, become, my sense of who I am will change. I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian who gets angry and uses curse words. And there is a shame that sets in, right? And it hinders my prayer life, the Bible says. It, it'll hinder my relationship with the Lord, my fellowship with the Lord, my sense of uh, f freedom with him and intimacy with him, okay? Now, there's a better way. There is a much better way. First John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we read this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, here's the better way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these, these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. So he's speaking here to Christians. You're, you, you don't want to sin. That's the goal. I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. But when you do sin, right, uh, your sins are covered by the righteousness of Christ. But there is uh, a cleansing that needs to happen. A cleansing that needs to happen. So now, imagine that I've just gotten angry and cursed at Sabrina, and I'm going to repent. And so I go, I, I say, Lord, I'm, that was wrong. I yelled at Sabrina. I used a curse word. I don't want to be an angry person. You tell me, don't let any unwholesome thing come forth out of your mouth, only that which is for edification. God, forgive me, I sinned against you and against my wife. And Lord, um, please forgive me, cleanse me from that, and help me. I don't want to do this. Spirit of God, please empower me not to do this again the next time. And then I go, and I've sinned against Sabrina, so I go to Sabrina and say, that was wrong. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I've uh, hurt you, and because of my sin, I don't want to be that way. And hopefully that Hopefully, uh, she forgives me and that relationship gets better. But we know what God will do, right? He says, he is faithful and just and will forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what happens? Well, it resensitizes me to that sin. The next time I start getting angry, I'm going to be thinking back of, well, I had to, you know, last time I got angry, I had to go confess to the Lord and go talk to Sabrina. Let's not do that again, right? Resensitizes me. And how do I think of myself? Well, I, I think of myself as I'm a Christian who is trying to be Christ-like, and when I sin, I'm quick to repent, and I receive God's forgiveness and cleansing. That's a very different view, and so it washes the shame off you. And then what does it do with my fellowship with the Lord? Well, as soon as I go and confess, 
Uh, I, I am aware. Here's, here's the deal. Until you confess, how are you going to hear? That's forgiven. Christ has paid for that sin. I love you. You're washed clean. Now get back up. And in the power of my Holy Spirit, let's do better. Right? Until you say, God, forgive me, only then do you hear back, you are forgiven. And so it restores your fellowship with the Lord. And so not only, so as a Christians, not only do we need to repent once, we need to repent ongoing for the health of our soul and our spiritual development. And so the fact of the matter is repentance empowers us in our fight against sin. When you repent, now, and this is very important because Christians will sometimes, they, they think, but I, I keep sinning in that particular area. I keep having to go back to the Lord and ask forgiveness. He's got to be tired of me, right? And so out of a sense of shame and a sense of defeat in that sin, you just stop asking for forgiveness. You just want to go, you know, uh, de into denial mode, right? But Jesus is the one who told Peter, 70 times 7, right? How many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Is there a limit to that? And Jesus says, no, there's no limit. That's the heart of God. And so don't say to yourself, but in that area, because I am just caught up in that sin, I'm going to, I can't even deal, I can't bear the shame and the embarrassment. Nope. It, God's mercy is always there in Christ he is always faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from not all unrighteousness. Not for the first 10 times, the first 20 times, not for the first five years, your entire life as a Christian. Amen. And so for some of you, that's what you need to hear today because you've given up. And, and you know what? You, what you've done is you've laid down one of the biggest tools for being set free from sin is that whole process of being uh, renewed, cleansed, as the Bible calls it. I want to conclude with the story of Thomas Terence. And you can find this story in the uh, Christianity Today, August 2019, Christianity Today. And uh, Thomas was, he grew up in Alabama in the 60s and 70s. And he went to church as a teenager. In fact, he was, uh, went forward and got baptized. But he fell in with white supremacists. And he became, got all indoctrinated and became convinced that he needed to uh, fight against uh, blacks and Jews and that he was actually preserving Christian America. And he joined the most violent branch of the KKK. And eventually he was involved in bombing a, a Jewish home, and there was a police firefight, and one of his co-conspirators got killed. And then six months later, he breaks out of jail. There's another big firefight. Another person gets killed. And uh, now he's put into solitary confinement. And when he's in solitary confinement, he said, in order to uh, not go crazy from loneliness, I just started reading constantly. And at first, he would only read white supremacist material. But eventually, he just ran out of that, and he branched out, and he ended up reading the New Testament. And here, here's what he writes. 
I had attended church and Sunday school more or less regularly until my early teen years, at which time I made a profession of faith and was baptized. I believed I was saved and would go to heaven when I died. Of course, the truth was just the opposite. I'd only given intellectual assent to the gospel and lacked true repentance. But as I read the gospels in my prison cell, my eyes were opened in a way that went beyond simply understanding the words of the page. As the true meaning of God's word became clear, so did its relevance to my life. I had been blind to spiritual reality all my life and now was beginning to see. As this process unfolded, my sins came to mind one after another. Conviction grew and with it, tears of repentance. I needed God's forgiveness and I knew it only came through trusting Jesus who had given his life to pay for my sins. One night I knelt on the concrete floor of my cell and prayed a simple prayer, confessing my sins and asking Jesus to forgive me. Take over my life. Do whatever he wants with it. The next morning I awoke with a deep hunger for scripture, a desire to pray and live for God. As I read the Bible daily, a whole new world opened up to me. I couldn't get enough. Early on, God delivered me from hate. And I began to grow in love for others. Friendships developed with black inmates and others who were very different from me, including the FBI agent who had orchestrated my initial capture, as well as the Jewish lawyer who helped him. But part of this awakening was not such welcome news. Morally, my life was a mess. The more I read the Bible, the more I saw it. Some of those changes happened quickly and without too much difficulty. Others took more time and struggle. And like all believers, I remain a work in progress as God continues to work on my sins, flaws, and follies. That was 50 years ago. And uh, the Lord uh, was merciful to him and he was released uh, from prison far earlier than he was supposed to be. And he became a pastor and he's been uh, pastoring for many years. And so I tell his story because there's a clear initial, well, first off, there's a belief that he's a Christian without repentance, right? And he was wrong. And then there was the initial repentance. He gets saved. And then there's the ongoing, the Lord continued to reveal to him his sins, his flaws, his follies. And for over the course of five decades, the Lord has, begun, has, has been changing him into the image of Jesus Christ and for none of none of us are done with that until Christ returns but every time we make a change we step into greater freedom let's pray so if you are convicted today that you have never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ that's your next step and what a monumental step that is it's reorienting your life away from sin and toward God through faith in his son Jesus Christ it's becoming a Christian and not only will your experience of this life change your eternal destiny will change do not leave this morning without doing that even though it's Super Bowl Sunday
and Christians. Maybe you have uh, never incorporated this habit of uh, regularly repenting of your sins. Well, you're not enjoying the, the great cleansing that can happen on such a regular basis. Some Christians have discovered uh, that at the end of every day, they think through their day and they repent of their sins and they find cleansing and they move forward uh, in freedom. Boy, incorporate that. And maybe, maybe there's a sin that's become habitual, has become uh, a complete stronghold in your life and you've just become so defeated and so embarrassed that you're not, it just seems overwhelming to once again go and ask for forgiveness. Seventy times seven, God does not say, nope, no more. Every time you come, he is faithful and just and will forgive and cleanse you. Take advantage of that. 